You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what he has to say in his word. Well, if you would, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, and if you didn't bring a Bible, uh, we'll have the verses displayed on the screen. Uh, Also, if you don't have a Bible, uh, stop by our welcome table, and we've got a bunch of them. We'd love to give you one as a gift, and uh, let me just say, they are very nice Bibles, very nice. Um, When I forget mine, uh, I sometimes dive into them, Uh, but stop over there. That'd be the greatest thing we could send you home with. Uh, So today we find ourselves looking at the final verses of the Olivet Discourse as we look at verses 31 through 46. Uh, This will complete our study then of the Olivet Discourse, so you can just go, oh, thank you, thank you. I hope that's how you feel. Uh, It's it's how I feel. Uh, Now, when we entered the Olivet Discourse, I knew that there would be a myriad of interpretive challenges, and surely there has been, so it has kept me reading a lot more um, than normal. Uh, But at the end of the day, I have also found this discourse to be a considerable delight to my soul, and I hope you have too, as we have been reminded time and time again about the plans of God, uh, the power of God. Uh, the victory and triumph of God, and especially the grace of God through the transformation that he brings about through the gospel. Amen? Uh, Now, there's a lot to think about today, so as always, let me just provide some context, especially for those of you who might be jumping into our study for the very first time. So in the Olivet Discourse, the main focus is and has been on the return of Jesus, his second coming to earth. And the question really has been, as of late, when is Jesus coming back? And uh, what a great question, right? In fact, if you're a Christian, you ask this question uh, quite a bit throughout the week, don't you? You kind of just look around and you go, man, the world is a, it's a dangerous place to live. And uh, there's a lot of sadness, uh, there's a lot of heartbreak, uh, There's just a lot of evil, there's a lot of suffering, and then not to mention you throw on top of that just the battle that we wage against our own hearts and uh, our own desires, and it all gets so exhausting that we just can only say, Lord, when will you return? Uh, And we cry out, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come, right? Uh, Well, the disciples also wanted to know when Jesus would come back and uh, understand why, because Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is only a matter of a day or so from being betrayed and crucified, and he says some pretty shocking things as his uh, departure nears. He talks about how judgment is coming on Jerusalem. Uh, He even says of the temple, the beautiful temple of Herod that just was so gorgeous, uh, he said that it was going to be brought down. Uh, He said that there would not be left one stone upon another that would not be thrown down. So the whole thing, he says, is going to be completely obliterated. And when Jesus is crucified, the disciples also know this. They know that Jesus will go to be with the Father. Uh, But at some time, they also know uh, he's going to return again because he said that much in Matthew 23, verse 39. Uh, In fact, 
Recently, he said, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, And you'll remember, that's what was said uh, about Jesus as he was making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? Well, the, the, the praises wouldn't last long, and eventually all the animosity would get ratcheted up as he did not become all that people wanted him to be. Uh, And as he continued to talk about uh, himself as the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, the Son of God. Um, uh, But given how closely Jesus talks about these things, uh, the destruction of the temple and his return, uh, just understand what the disciples are thinking. It's clear in their minds that they are assuming all these things are going to kind of take place at the same time. Uh, that Jesus is going to come back, and, and you know that's when the temple is going to be destroyed. That's when the end of the age uh, will have come, and, uh, and all of that. And we see that in the questions they ask in Matthew 24, verse 3. They say, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, there's a lot to say here, but uh, probably the most important thing to point out is simply that it's clear that what Jesus says to the disciples is going to take place uh, is so far from what they expected. And rather than his return being kind of soon, uh, he essentially says, actually, it's going to be a long way out uh, because there's going to be a lot of things that go from bad to really bad, and there's going to be a downward spiral. And, uh, and then eventually, after things get to their worst point, then I'm going to Return, But uh, based on all the events Jesus talks about uh, that need to take place before his return, it was very clear that it was going to be a long ways out. And here we are, and we are still waiting for that return. So when is he going to come back? Well, uh, Jesus doesn't tell the disciples, and he doesn't tell us, and he doesn't tell us because, frankly, he doesn't know. Um, That's actually what he says. In fact, he says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So he can't say when he will return because he doesn't know when he will return, but he can say this, that no matter who you are, you better be ready for his return because it could happen at any moment. And anyone who is found to be faithless, literally without faith in him, Anybody who is not expecting his return, anybody who is not ready for his return, will meet the righteous judgment and wrath of God on that day. And so the question really becomes this then, what is faith? What is faith? Um, And what are the differences between those who have faith and those who don't? And what does it really look like for someone to stay ready and to be awake and to remain expectant for his return? Well, that's really what Jesus illustrates towards the end of the Olivet Discourse through a number of stories known as parables, which, uh, you know, are just beautiful stories that really help us understand the difference between those who have faith and those who don't. And uh, so we've looked at a number of parables. We've got one left, though, and just consider this, right, that, again, we're seeing what is true saving faith look like. It looks like the faithful people in the parables. And I won't go through the parables that we've already covered, um, except for to maybe just review some of what we've learned uh, about what it looks like to be ready. So what does saving faith look like? Uh, Well, we see a number of things at work. We certainly know uh, that those who are ready are not arrogant. Uh, They are not abusive. Uh, They are not presumptuous. 
Um, the faithful people of God, they do not have a spirit of entitlements. They are not reckless and wasteful with their lives, but they live to please the Lord by busying themselves with his agenda and his prerogatives and what he wants them uh, to do. To say it another way, those who have faith in Jesus ultimately wake up in the morning and they ask one simple question over and over and over again, Lord, how do you want me to live? How do you want me to live? Uh, you've given me all of these possessions. You've given me salvation. You've given me life. You've given me breath in my lungs. How do you want me to live for your glory? And so we saw the picture of uh, Christians as stewards, right? Because that's what we are. We're just stewards. God gives us so many things, and then it's up to us to be faithful with those things, to serve the Lord with those things, and, uh, and keep in mind why these parables and these lessons that we're getting are so significant. Uh, they are significant because we are reminded uh, time and again of what the Lord calls us to positively. What do I mean? Well, oftentimes when we think about our relationship with the Lord, a lot of people only think in terms of the negative. So they think only in terms of what they have or have not done against the Lord. And, you know, that's, you probably met some people like that. That's kind of how they measure where they're at with the Lord. Well, what does the Lord think of me? Well, you know, I haven't, I, maybe I haven't done the best this week. Uh, you know, I've, I've done some bad things, but, I mean, they haven't been terrible, certainly not as terrible as some of the people I see around me, right? But, uh, friends, that is not how the people of God ever think um, because they're marked by such a radically different perspective. We don't think about, what we avoid or what we stay away from or what we've done or haven't done, but we're thinking about how to live in a way to bring glory to the Lord because we love him. We love him. We, we yearn to serve him. There's been an internal transformation in our lives, right? And so the question really needs to be for any person on the face of the planet, do you aspire to live for the Lord? Is it your desire to love the Lord, to honor him. Not that you simply think like, how do I stay away from the bad stuff, but, but that you're coming to him because you love him because of all that he's done for you. So uh, again, that's how the uh, parables have been really helpful because they show a picture of what that even looks like. Uh, but we're not done yet because we, like I said, have one more parable to look at. But the idea, just remember, is the same. What saving faith is, and what it leads to versus what unbelief is and what it leads to. And with that then, if you would, since you're open to Matthew 25 and have been waiting for me, follow along with me beginning in verse 31. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you? Um, 
when did we, uh, when were you thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Uh, Now, as most of you know, I don't typically do object lessons, but I've decided to make an exception this morning. And uh, so I've brought a number of things with me that I want to show you, and uh, there's going to be a little group participation. Again, this isn't normal. I'm just throwing it in, though. A uh, little group participation. Uh, so a couple of things I brought that are of value to me, and I want to see if you can guess the value of these things. Okay? So uh, first of all, I've got a North Face jacket. Uh, you will recognize uh, North Face as a very good brand. Uh, It's sold up there with Patagonia and Columbia and other high-quality items. Uh, It's certainly not an item I like to be without in our northern climate. It brings me great satisfaction to have it on during winter. Uh, So uh, anyways, what do you think uh, this thing probably retails for? $225. Okay, we got $225. I feel like doing an auctioneer thing. (laughs) And now that we got 225, do I hear 230, 230? 225, who would say that's too high? Raise your hand if you think that's too high. Oh, okay, wow. The, this side of the room seems to be all of one mind this morning. Um, I love it. The price is right is going on here today. Um, okay, decent guess. Adam or Jeremy, you're back there. So what do we got here? Uh, I guess, you know, that might not be my exact jacket, but one similar to it, I guess, retails for 110 That's actually, I think, a pretty good deal because it would not be out of line to see a jacket by North Face uh, for 225 or what have you. Okay, so, so did it say clearance on there? <laughs> I found a website. I screenshotted that thing, and I sent it on over. Didn't look too closely. All right, so here now. Um, here we go. We've got a Michael Jordan jersey. Okay, limited edition actually, uh, North Carolina, because of course that's where Jordan played before he went into the NBA. So uh, you know anything Jordan uh, pretty much increases its value immediately, right? Uh, so, anyways, what do you uh, what do you think here on something like this? Are we thinking. Who says more than 50? Who says more than 100? Who says more than 300? Anybody more than 400? 500? Okay, well, uh, fancy this. There's a a tag on here. First of all, Jeremy, show them the picture up there. So a jersey similar to this one is, uh, yeah, $120 there. Um, 
this actually says on the tag, $450, right? And now you're saying the pastor is overpaid. Um, well, before I uh, let you stay on that thought for too long, uh, just so you know, I've tricked you all. Uh, and uh, no, the value of these things isn't anywhere close to those numbers uh, because the truth is these are, these are like knockoffs. So this jacket of mine uh, was given to me by my friend Brandon. He spent some time over in East Asia. And, uh, and then this other, this jersey here, it says 450 on it, but my friend uh, Mike Matson, he served in the military. I think he was stationed in Indonesia, and uh, and he picked it up for I don't I think both items individually sold for like five to ten bucks. <laughs> so um, if any of you had the thought to steal that Michael Jordan jersey, uh, it would not necessarily break my heart if that happens. So go for it. Um, <laughs> if you do that, we have more important conversations to have. Um, well, you, you've seen this before, right? I mean, this happens in the world. Uh, there's a difference between uh, the genuine and the fake. And uh, we especially see this a lot with, uh, with China. They're always trying to create some sort of fake imitation of name brand items. Um, and uh, and here's, here's ultimately the connection in our story. So we read about two types of animals, and what are they? Sheep and goats, that's right. Uh, well, the thing is, in the area of Palestine, sheep and goats, they would mix together, even though that doesn't necessarily happen in a lot of other places. And it could be quite challenging to tell the two apart uh, because they would tend to look a lot alike in size, shape, and color, the native uh, sheep and the goats. And so there you have a picture of the goats, and there you have the sheep. There you go. That's right. That's helpful. Back and forth. There you go. Um, and uh, why does this matter? Well, I mean, we, we see this picture spoken of by Jesus, and just knowing that actually they appear very similar is helpful to us because, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, we live in a world where we've got ultimately two groups of people, and maybe you've heard somebody say, well, there's two groups of people this, and there's three groups of people that. Well, no, when Jesus says it, it's for sure true. He says there's two groups of people out there in the world, and one group is a group of sheep, and the other group is a group of goats, and the thing is, in our lives right now, we've got sheep and goats mixing it up together, and it's not always clear uh, who is a sheep and who is a goat, right? And unfortunately, even in or near or around the church, we have this mixing going on. And uh, no doubt, some of you are thinking to yourself, oh, I, I for sure know a few goats, you know. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, God himself knows perfectly who a sheep is and who a goat is. And we can certainly look at the fruit of lives and we can get it right. At the same time, we can be misled. Our judgment is not flawless. It is not without fail, right? But one day, all will be known because Jesus is going to come back. And at that time, he is going to separate the sheep from the goats. And trust me, it will be a perfect separation, won't it? Because God knows the heart of every individual. He knows your thoughts, he knows your desires, and he knows your actions. And one day he will judge all people according to his own divine omniscience. And for the record, as we look at this passage, 
The Greek word used here is ethnos. Uh, Sometimes it's translated as nations or Gentiles even. But really the best way to see it in our passage is as people, since God will judge individuals, uh, he will not judge anyone on the basis of their group affiliation. Everyone will be judged for their own sin and accountable for their own sin. And on that day, as we know, there will be no more secrets. Uh, There will be no more mysteries And all closets will be emptied as the professors of faith are separated from the possessors of faith, and the saints are separated from the ain'ts, and the pretenders are separated from the contenders. And can I get an amen? Amen. When will this happen? Well, obviously we said when Jesus returns, but there is a little debate about this in terms of the timing, so let me just quickly walk you through the positions that exist, and I'm going to use some uh, helpful graphics on the screen Uh, The graphics I'm putting up here just reveal different timelines or chronologies of future things. Uh, So the first position I'll discuss is amillennialism. Amillennialism is the position that Jesus is currently reigning and ruling uh, at the right hand of God the Father on the throne of David. And uh, right now, ever since the death, burial, and resurrection, Satan has been bound and ultimately Um, We are the recipients of all promises given to Israel. We are the new Israel. And when Jesus comes back, there's ultimately going to be one moment of judgment. And, uh, you know, whether you read in Revelation 20 about a great white throne of judgment or whether you read here about a goat sheep judgment, those judgments are ultimately the same in this position. And so after this judgment happens, then you have the new heavens and the new earth. Next graphic. Okay, then the next position is premillennialism. Uh, subtle distinction with premillennialism because premillennialism believes that the church certainly uh, stands in a, a wonderful place where we have been recipients of promises made to Israel. Uh, in many aspects, the new covenant uh, has been inaugurated. We get the spiritual blessings and benefits and and, uh, and, and there's more to come, but um, ultimately there is still literal promises left uh, that have to be fulfilled, uh, promises that were given to Israel specifically, and so we are awaiting really Jesus to take his plane, place on the throne of David. When will that happen? Uh, that will happen when Jesus comes, and at his second coming, uh, when he sits on the Davidic throne, that is when there will be a thousand-year pe- uh, reign inaugurated on earth. The kingdom will be consummated on earth. Uh, that earthly kingdom will go on for a thousand years, and there will be a final judgment. So the sheep-goat judgment in the premillennial perspective happens right before the millennial reign on earth, okay, at the second coming. Uh, So I hope that's, I don't know, helpful, but the question really is, as you read this, does the sheep-goat judgment refer to a judgment before an earthly millennial kingdom, or is it the same judgment as the great white throne of judgment, which is described in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15? Now, uh, we certainly don't want to get too caught up on the timing of things, because that's not really the main point of the passage, is it? Uh, But I know that some of you, your students of theology at eschatology, especially as we've been moving through the Olivet Discourse, uh, so I thought maybe that you would find find that of help in some ways. Um, But there's a couple reasons, I guess, that I hold to the premillennial perspective, and I'll just lay those out quickly for you. First, I do believe, if you read through Revelation, it's laid out in a pretty chronological fashion. And so there's uh, 
a, a judgment, a day of the Lord in, in chapter 19, followed by the binding of Satan and a millennial reign at the beginning of chapter 20, which is then followed by the great white throne of judgment in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. So that would certainly seem to leave room for two judgments. And, you know, there are differences between these two judgments. Uh, Revelation 20 emphasizes the judgment of the wicked, those not found in the book of life, while Matthew 25 focuses on the righteous. Additionally, Matthew 25 revolves around acts of kindness and service, while Revelation 20 emphasizes books such as the book of life. So um, those are some of my reasons. Um, Finally, and since I do believe that Jesus uh, will come again and establish uh, a kingdom on earth to fulfill literal promises given to, uh, given to them in the Old Testament. I think I just want to point that out. Like, why would I believe that there would be a literal reign of Christ on earth? Uh, in my estimation, it just seems the most straightforward way of reading the Old Testament. For example, we're told in Isaiah 9 how Jesus would sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Uh, Jeremiah 33, verses 15 through 16, speak about how the Messiah would execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And you might recall the message to Mary. She is told, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and he shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So we have these promises as you read through the Bible, and uh, these promises speak about a descendant of David who would come and rule in Jerusalem on the throne of David over all the nations. And frankly, since David's throne was an earthly throne, Uh, and we see it as a literal throne in the past, we would certainly expect the same to be true in the future of his descendant. And uh, I really don't think that any New Testament uh, writers change that expectation. In fact, if anything, as I read, especially in Matthew, it would seem that they heighten it, especially Jesus, um, which he does certainly in verse 1, or 31, as he talks about how he is going to come and then sit on a glorious throne. But If you are in Matthew, I also want to just invite you to turn over a couple pages to Matthew 19, if you would, because I think this is going to be uh, perhaps helpful. Uh, So if you look at Matthew 19, there's a situation, right, where, uh, you know, Peter is kind of asking, essentially, like, is it going to be worth it to follow you, Jesus? And Jesus responds with this in Matthew 19, verse 28. He said, truly, I say to you, in the new world... When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Like, there's so many moments that when you're reading, you go, if they had a massive misunderstanding, it'd be a good time to correct it. Uh, Jesus doesn't. He actually talks about how there's going to be a place with national Israel. The disciples themselves are actually going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So with that said, maybe just a practical question, uh, is Jesus seated on the throne of David right now? Again, maybe just to recap, if you're an amillennialist, you would say yes, but if you're a premillennialist, you would say no, because what Jesus talks about is clearly something that will happen after his second coming. He will come, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, 
does that mean that there are no kingdom realities at work today? Certainly there is, because we worship Jesus, the king of God's kingdom, the one who we call Lord and thus acknowledge as the supreme ruler of the universe, even more through faith in Jesus, we become citizens and members of God's kingdom. Uh, you could find this in all sorts of places. Maybe later, look up Colossians 1, verse 13, or 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 through 12. Uh, even more today, we live by the values or the ethics of the kingdom, don't we? And in fact, we could even call the church an outpost of the kingdom, maybe an embassy of the kingdom, because we are a place where citizens gather and we have been given the keys to grant others admission into the kingdom. However, when you hear people talk about building the kingdom, let me be clear about something. We don't actually do that. Like We don't do that as Christians. We don't build the kingdom because there's a physical, material aspect of what God is going to do in the future. Yes, we can proclaim the kingdom, enter the kingdom, reject the kingdom, inherit the kingdom, and possess the kingdom, but it is God and God alone who establishes it and ushers it in. And when he does, again, based on my understanding, we are going to see a literal manifestation of the kingdom with Jesus sitting on a throne, with Israel in their own land, with the whole earth experiencing a regeneration of sorts, and with people of every tribe, tongue, and nation streaming to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. But uh, those matters are not the most important matters, but they are matters addressed in our passage, so I wanted to cover uh, them. With that, though, what is the most important issue? whether you're a sheep or whether you are a goat, right? And I don't know about you, but sometimes I have, you know, as I've read this text about this sheep-goat judgment, I've wondered to myself, like, man, what is that going to look like? I'm, I'm just thinking about a really, really, really long line of people, right? Like, how long is this thing going to take? Uh, I, I can't imagine any concessions being there or restrooms. You know, we, we don't need to worry about that kind of stuff. But... Uh, you know, what does this all look like, right? Uh, but again, obviously, that's not focused on by Jesus because it's not the main point since what is uh, the focus is on the works that Jesus looks at to determine whether you are a sheep or a goat. And uh, with that, let me just be clear about something if, if I haven't. Jesus does evaluate us on the basis of works, right? He evaluates us on the basis of works, However, uh, we're not saved by our works, are we? Absolutely not. That would be a false gospel. Uh, we are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. Nothing added. However, if our faith is real, what results? Works. And our works reveal the genuineness of our faith in Jesus Christ. And so faith is always the root, but works are the fruit. Uh, to say it another way, we are not saved by works, but we are saved for works. Uh, we're told how we are uh, created in Christ Jesus for works that God has prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So we're justified by faith and faith alone, but uh, at the same time, our faith is revealed in works. Uh, someone has once said it like this, salvation is not a wage we earn, but it comes with a job description. I just love that picture, all right? God saves you, he brings you into his family, and then all of a sudden he says, here's what I want you to do, right? And the heart, as we mentioned earlier, is, Lord, 
teach me to do what you want me to do. How do you want me to live? How, what do you want me to desire? How do you want me to think? We're just constantly coming before uh, the Lord. Um, and so we see this, that really faith in Jesus, it changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, it leads to a total transformation of one's life, a complete makeover, we could say. And so the question really that maybe you should ask yourself this morning is, as we look at this parable, the things that we see here, the works that we see here, the fruit that we see here, is it present in your life? Is it present in your life? And if it's not, then why not? Could it be that you are not truly setting your hope in Christ? Could, could it be that you have not turned away from sin to Jesus to receive the hope and forgiveness of the cross and the new birth that Jesus Christ offers? Uh, so uh, let's look at this carefully then, beginning with the sheep since they are dealt with first as those who have been granted entrance into the kingdom. Then we'll think about the goats. Look at verse 35. So this is what Jesus says to the sheep, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. What's Jesus ultimately saying here? He's saying that if you are a sheep, that you will be marked by a remarkable compassion for others. That there is going to be a desire to extend the mercy of God unto others. There's going to be a desire to relieve the distress and suffering of those in this world. We are just totally changed, like I said, where in Christ, all of a sudden, we begin to see ourselves in the shoes of others, right? You've heard it said, something like that. You'll never understand someone's life until you've walked in their shoes. Christians we regularly think about that. It's an ongoing reality for us. And the sheep here clearly do that. As they look out in the world and they are continuing to care in a myriad of ways for people who are in the midst of suffering circumstances, right? So we see this going on and, and there's so much that I want us to notice here. First, though, notice this, how God shows up in the mundane. I think there's incredible encouragement that we can receive by just pausing and going, wow, consider this, right? I mean, God shows up in the mundane. Now, think about this, right? Because I'm guessing, and let me just ask you this question, how many of you want your life to count for the glory of God? I hope every hand goes up, right? I mean, do we not all want to do great things for the Lord? Do we not at the end of our lives want to hear a well-done, good, and faithful servant? Well, here's the thing. If you want to do great things for God, it means caring about the small things. It means caring about the everyday things. It means caring about people, serving people, loving people. Because get this, when you do that, what happens? God shows up. God shows up. We get enamored with building projects and businesses and uh, income and all sorts of other things, right? And programs, we, we can so easily get misaligned, though, because where does the Lord place his emphasis? It's always on the nurturing and the caring of people. And uh, as you think about this, I want to maybe put some context to things, uh, because who is it that Jesus is ultimately talking about? I, I think that most, I guess, in view is really the people of God. And, and part of that is because when Jesus talks about the least of these, my brothers, 
there's kind of an implied, I think, understanding that the people that we care for are Christians first and foremost, and then obviously we want those works to also carry into the world. But there's, also, but there's always a matter of priority. It starts with the household of faith. It starts with the people of God. It starts with caring for other Christians, and it works itself out. And as you think about even the Olivet Discourse, I mean, what have we covered in terms of events and experiences uh, that the earth is going to see? Uh, we, are, we see highlighted especially the persecution of the people of God. Uh, those that take a stand for Christ, uh, they're going to be defamed. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be maligned. And we're going to see people depart from the faith. And there's going to be great suffering on behalf of the people of God. But we look at each other and we, we notice these sufferings and we immediately want to get involved. And I would say that this is very consistent as you look at the Bible, right? Because what does Jesus say in John 13, verse 34? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I am not in any way trying to take away from the fact that we should desire to do good to all that we possibly can. We should desire to relieve the suffering of people no matter who they are, no matter where they are, but at the same time, I have to ask you, do you do that particularly within the household of God? Do you care for Christians? Do you even care for the people to your left or to your right in these ways? Because when we read the phrase one another, just understand there's always this community, family emphasis to it, right? The idea of one another, that's why we value membership. In fact, we've got a membership class today. We value membership because in membership, it's where a person says, I want to care for you with the love of Jesus, and I want you to care for me with the love of Jesus. And, and, and it's reciprocated, right? It's saying, I'm going to give myself to caring and loving you as part of the family of God, and I want you to also give yourself to loving me and caring for me as part of the family of God. And, uh, but it starts in the household of God and works itself out in the world. Paul even points that out in Galatians 6, verse 10. He says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Point, though, when God saves you, he gives you a heart of compassion. And this starts with the people of God and works itself out. And let me tell you uh, that this is why my heart is personally just so encouraged by our church. I think I look around and I'm constantly encouraged, whether it's when people are having babies or when someone gets sick or when somebody experiences a tragedy that we have seen uh, just our congregation rise up and care for people in amazing ways. And I know you get it uh, because I see you so diligently. And all I can say is keep doing it. Keep at it. Let's keep striving to be the people of God that minister to one another in ways that demonstrate the radical mercy, compassion, and abundant uh, goodness of God. Amen? So the first thing we see here, right? God shows up in the mundane. I'm just I'm just amazed at that, right? Where when somebody is treated with compassion, it's as though Jesus himself is receiving uh, their empathy and their sympathy, right? Uh, but second thing I want us to notice here, second thing I want us to notice is particularly the response of the sheep after the commendation by Jesus. 
Because what do they say? Look at verse 37. They say, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? You notice what's happening here? It's like these people have spiritual amnesia. They just cannot think of a time when they actually did the things Jesus is talking about. What what, what are you talking about, Jesus? When did I clothe you? When did I feed you? When did I do these things? Because I'm I'm having a hard time pulling it to my mind right now. And, And so you get this, like these people, they are not acting as those who were keeping track, right? Is that you? When you get involved, you keep track, you're going, points for me. Jesus is really happy with me. Pat yourself on the back, right? That does not characterize the works of these people. And again, it's so reflective of where their heart is then, right? I mean, they're, they're wanting to worship Christ, but not because they're trying to repay anyone for what he has done. They're not trying to repay him. You've done this. I'm going to try and kind of earn my salvation. I'm going to accrue points. They're not doing it even to be seen by others. They're just doing it because they love Jesus Christ. And friends, isn't that just What happens that when we are so enamored with Jesus Christ, when our vision is set on him, when we are overwhelmed by his mercy, that's just what it will lead to. It will lead to a life of demonstrating his mercy to others. And it won't be keeping track of things, but it will be complete joy. It will be just the out of the overabundance of our gratitude for what Jesus has done. Friends, is that you? Does that characterize your life? And you just see here, I mean, life can be so messy, right? I mean, sometimes uh, so messy. We get a concern sometimes where we go, I, I don't want to be a burden to others. Well, guess what? That's, that's kind of what the body of Christ is called to do. We are called to be involved in each other's lives. We are called to roll up our sleeves, right, and get dirty. And yes, we've got some We've got some things that need to change in our own lives, but, you know, this project that we're called to in the church, it's a group project, transformation, gospel transformation, being like Jesus, following Jesus. Guess what? I'm going to commit myself to trying to be like Jesus, but I need you to help me be like Jesus too. And the whole family of God is supposed to help one another do the same too. So I hope this week that you will put your eyes on Jesus Christ in such a way that you will just, you will become forgetful of yourself. Because that's really what humility is, right? When we think about humble people, they're not the people that walk around and go, oh, I'm just a terrible person. I'm just, I'm just so horrible. I'm just so awful. That's not the picture. Humble people are actually the people that just don't think about themselves at all, Right? So it's not thinking much about yourself. It's not thinking little about yourself. It's just not thinking about yourself because you're so fixated on Jesus and what he wants that you lose lose keeping track of of what you're doing. So, So where's your heart again? What path are you on? Does this describe you? Because it's such a contrast, right? If this is not the path you're on, then we know the path you're really on. You're not a sheep. You're actually a goat. A goat. And the end is, is terrible. 
it's frightening, right? Because this leads to judgment. I just want to maybe contrast. You have the attitude of the sheep. Well, what's the attitude of the goats? Well, when Jesus talks to them, their question is, when did we not do these things? And just hang on that for a moment. The sheep say, when did we do these things? The goats go, when did we not do these things? Right? There's, there's a sense in which they're like, I've climbed the mountain. I've done what you've asked. I've performed all that you wanted from me. When did I not do it? Not so with the righteous. Because again, they're just humbled by God's mercy. They're so focused on what God has done for them. They're so enamored with how he has served them. He has clothed them. He has fed them. That that's all they can focus on. And so friends, again, where is your heart this morning? I hope... I hope that your focus is on Jesus Christ because if not, judgment is coming. It is certain and the eternal destiny is sure. Hell is a real place. It is a real place of torment. It is a real place where you will pay for your sins for all eternity. It will never end. And when you've been there a second, you will wish that you had never gone there and yet it will never end. But that does not need to be your hope. That does not need to be your destiny because Jesus has come. He has lived a life that you could not live. He has died the death that we deserve so that for whoever comes to him would have eternal life. They could have forgiveness. They could have reconciliation. That can be yours today, friend. Again, this this parable is not a list of I'm gonna do the works and then God is gonna save me. No, no. These works come when you finally realize your own sin and selfishness and turn to Jesus Christ and go, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. And friend, I hope that you would run to the cross, leave all, forsake all, run away from all, and turn to Jesus, the hope of salvation, because victory is his. And on the final day, only one will stand, and who will it be? Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.